The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. I think it used to make me very angry when I would hear conversations about belief versus unbelief presented along the lines of a debate between uh, faith versus science or faith versus reason. And I think what I heard when, you know, the mainstream was sort of saying that, uh, faith versus reason or faith versus science, I think what I heard them saying is Christians or any people of faith for that matter are unreasonable and blindly believing. In other words, the assumption is almost kind of like, well, if you're skeptical, you got to your skepticism because you thought critically for yourself. But if you're a person of faith, you got there because either you didn't think critically for yourself or uh, you were just incapable of thinking critically for yourself. And one of the more influential movements actually within um, that kind of realm is the freedom from religion, an organized religion realm, is a group called the Free Thinkers. And even that... Even that is like a not-so-subtle insinuation uh, about the perspective because obviously if people who dislike organized religion call themselves free thinkers, they mean, they mean to say by that that anybody who is in an organized religion must be, if they're free thinkers, then you are not really free thinkers. You're enslaved to somebody else's thoughts. And that kind of level of almost kind of condescension always sort of irritated me. Uh, and I think I've gotten a little more balanced over time because what I've found is that believers and skeptics alike both actually operate in a very similar manner. What I mean by that is uh, we all use reason to the best of our ability insofar as it's convenient for us. Every person I know uses some reason to the best of their ability insofar as it's convenient for us. And, and yet also all of us are living our lives by faith. We're making decisions based on uh, a lack of sensory information that we have that things will turn out well. In other words, I think this has allowed me to become a little more balanced because I think that the critique of some believers as almost blindly believing is arguably sometimes fair. Uh, if somebody asks you, are you a Christian and why are you a Christian, and you say something along the lines of, well, of course I'm a Christian. You know, my family was Christians and my grandpa was a pastor and I went to a bunch of Christian schools growing up. Of course I'm a Christian. I don't think that's good enough. I think you actually have to have some sense of awe and wonder that the God of the entire universe, by grace, chose you, despite all your flaws and mistakes, to be his own precious child. There has to be some awe and wonder attached to that. In other words, when Peter says in his epistle, Always be prepared to give everyone a reason for the hope that you have. I don't think he's suggesting, well, the hope that I have, well, of course I'm a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. Uh, other kind of pat answers that Christians sometimes give, well, you just, you got to have faith in life. You know, sometimes these are things that lazy, intellectually lazy cultural Christians say because they don't really want to, wrestle with the intricacies and the depth of God's word. And so I guess what I'm saying is sometimes I think the critique of some people of faith as being 
unreasonable and blindly believing, I think that's actually sometimes fair. On the other end of the spectrum, however, I do think that it's kind of ironic for people who call themselves free thinkers to say that they live their lives entirely by reason. No. We're all living our lives by faith. We all function in life according to some realities that we cannot uh, fully explain. Uh, we're all basing some of the decisions we make in life on the experience of others, not our own personal sensory experience. So, just a couple examples. I know that there is such a place as Sydney, Australia. At least I believe there is. Not because I can prove it scientifically, but because I base that belief on the credible eyewitness of other people. Or uh, maybe a better example of that is, I know the, the Battle of Gettysburg happened, or at least I believe I do. Why? That cannot be proven scientifically, really. But I base my belief on the testimony of credible witnesses along the way. We're all doing that. It would be impossible in life to proceed uh, without knowing, uh, if you thought you had to know all of the possible evidence and verification of truth in every possible detail. Um, we're living by faith. When you go to the restaurant and you sit down and you eat the meal, how do you know that that's going to be safe food to eat, that it was cooked at the exact right temperature and there's nothing in there that could hurt you? You don't know that. You eat it anyways. Uh, how do you know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that when you get behind the wheel of a car, you're not going to get into some kind of life-threatening accident? You don't know that. People do it every day, though. That's the way they operate. How do you know when you step foot on a plane? I mean, my goodness, do you have any idea how much faith you are expressing when you get on a plane? You're expressing faith in the skill of the pilot. You're expressing faith in the attentiveness of the air traffic control. You're expressing faith in the design of the engineers. So this whole idea, you know, that some people are living by faith and some people are not is just complete and utter nonsense. We're all living by faith. We're all using reason to the best of our ability. Pitting faith against reason, I think, is some kind of like satanic deception. The question in life is not who is living by faith and who is living by reason. The question in life, if we're all living by faith and we're all living by some reason, is who or what is the most reasonable thing to put our deepest trust in life in? And I think Paul's leading us tonight to understand it makes sense that you would invest your trust, your faith, uh, in an admittedly mysterious God, okay? So Paul's lesson tonight for us, from, it's going to be from Romans chapter 11, and it's something called a doxology. A doxology is a churchy word for a song of praise. And why is Paul singing a song of praise in the middle of his letter to the Romans? Well, it's because of what he's just been inspired to write for the prior three chapters. If you read through Romans 9 through 11, what he's doing there is Paul is tracing the history of the mysterious plan of salvation that God brought to mankind. See, God, despite being God of all people and all creation, specifically chose in the Old Testament that he was going to have as his people the Israelites, the Jewish people, and he was going to bring forth his son, the Savior, from that group. And yet, uh, while some believed in that God, the vast majority over time drifted away, and yet God used that as an opportunity by which to birth salvation for all mankind. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, then goes on to say that anybody who's actually a child of Abraham, 
uh, is one not who is ethnically a descendant from Abraham, the father of faith, but one who is spiritually a descendant of Abraham, the father of faith. In other words, you believe what Abraham believed, not just you have the same kind of DNA that Abraham had. You believe that our righteousness comes by a gift of God's grace, something that we don't earn or deserve, and it comes through a promised Messiah. And now, as the, as the Apostle Paul is being inspired by the Spirit to write this, he's getting so overwhelmed by what he's experiencing, this brilliant, genius plan of salvation that no Jew or Gentile ever would have come up with on their own. That God would choose the Jewish people to be his people, that he'd bring a savior through them, that they would necessarily reject him so that in rejecting him, he would birth salvation for all mankind. Paul says that is so mind-blowing, so overwhelming, that he busts out into praise and he starts worshiping God. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. It's never just music or uh, a bunch of people or an hour on a Sunday or whatever. When the Holy Spirit stirs something inside of you that responds to what God has done for you, that's what worship is. Okay? Uh, This is a little bit of an aside, but uh, I think it's it's worthwhile for us. it's very important for mature Christians to understand what worship is and true worship is and what it's not and to be super aware of this. You can go to a church service and hear a message that inspires you and maybe a message about self-improvement and self-empowerment and you walk away feeling very positive. That doesn't mean that you've worshipped yet. You can go to a worship service and you can walk away and hear this incredible music that's inspiring and uh, brings tears to your eyes along the ways, and you feel very positive about it, that doesn't mean that you've worshipped yet. I mean, you might have worshipped, but that in and of itself doesn't prove that you have worshipped because you feel positive leaving the experience. Uh, There's a lot of ways to manipulate those feelings. I could bring out a bottle of Jack tonight and this evening take, you know, six or eight or ten hits within the course of this hour and I can walk out of here tonight feeling very positive. I might, actually I might stumble out of here or be carried out of here, but nonetheless I would, I would feel very positive. And I would do it having been amongst a bunch of other Christians and I would have done it with a big open Bible and I would have done it here in a sanctuary and I would have felt very positive. That doesn't mean I've worshipped yet. Unless the Holy Spirit, this is why I'm saying you can't just trust your feelings. Modern people, just modern Americans want to trust their feelings on everything. You can't because you can manipulate feelings so easily. Unless the Holy Spirit stirs in you to respond to the grace that God has shown to you, you haven't yet worshipped. And furthermore, true worship always indicates something that you know about God already and acknowledging that you want to know so much more about that God. Okay? That's exactly what Paul tells us tonight in Romans 11, his doxology in Romans. And here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. This, this mysterious, brilliant wisdom of God. Then what he does is he goes on to quote two sections from the Old Testament. The first section that he quotes is from Isaiah 40 where he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The obvious answer is no one. 
Now, Isaiah says this at a time right after he's not only promised that the Messiah is going to come, but he's promised the forerunner, the predecessor to the Messiah. Uh, The voice of one calling in the wilderness, we know that is John the Baptist. That's the level of detail and blueprint God already has down on his plan of salvation 700 years before Jesus even comes into the world. Did the people at that time fully understand the voice of one calling in the wilderness? No. God's ways are always going to be higher than our ways, and they're always going to, from our perspective, look mysterious. He goes on to say, another quote, uh, the second thing he quotes from the Old Testament is from the book of Job. It's at the end of Job's book, uh, in Job chapter 41. He writes, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Again, the obvious answer is, no one. Now, Job says this after, uh, God says this to Job after 40 chapters of Job ruminating about all the different calamities that God has allowed to come into his life and say, why, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And God says what? Job, I'm so much higher than you. You're never going to be able to understand everything that I do in your life. In fact, you should not expect to understand everything that I'm doing. That would be unreasonable. If I am as lowly as you, and I'm telling you things in a way that you as a finite, sinful human being can fully comprehend, that means that I am so low that I am not actually deserving of your praise. For me to be a praiseworthy God to you, I have to say and do things that are so far above you that sometimes you're not going to understand them. And so what he said thus far is Paul says, God's teachings are infinitely deep and rich. He says we should not be able to fully comprehend or or process all of them. Uh, And that is actually evidence that God is deserving of our praise because he's so much higher than us. And he concludes by saying what? He's saying God is Lord over all things in a comprehensive way. Notice what he says. "For, For him, or from him, excuse me, he's the creator, and through him, he's the sustainer, And for him, he's the goal of everything, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And consequently, you and I should anticipate that if God is higher than us in the same way, for instance, that a parent is higher than a child. And a child simply cannot process, why do I have to have a bedtime when I want to stay up? And why can't I just grab a toy off the shelf at the store because I want it and isn't that enough for me to have it? They don't understand the economics of it all. Or why can't I just uh, eat cookies and ice cream for dinner? It tastes better than the vegetables you put on my plate because they don't understand nutrition. The child cannot process the ways of their adult, the ways of their parents, but the ways of the parent are objectively better for the child. You and I, who are so much lower to God than a child is to a parent, should not expect that we're always going to be able to fully process and appreciate the ways of an infinite God. Now, unless you understand that point, you're not going to be able to process any of Christian doctrine. You have to understand his ways are always going to be higher than our ways. I'm going to give you three illustrations of that here tonight that are three kind of essential teachings of the Christian faith. The first is the teaching regarding creation. Uh, Many Christians have tried desperately to harmonize Uh, something like mainstream science today and the biblical creation account and what typically ends up happening is an abuse and a distortion of of scripture. Um, In other words, if you tried to say that the days of creation 
are really just something like periods uh, of time in history and eras and maybe millions or billions of years, you're not just affecting the creation teaching, you're actually affecting all of Scripture because all of Scripture uh, teaching is interconnected. So, for instance, when the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, the wages of sin is death. The reason there's death is sin. The reason there's death is human rebellion. And in Romans 8, he says, the reason all creation suffers is because of human rebellion. If you say that those days of creation are millions or billions or whatever of years, and that animals were evolving and going through the whole macroevolutionary process prior to humans even existing on earth, you know what you're saying? You're saying death came before sin. You completely undermine all of Paul's New Testament theology if you say death exists apart from or ahead of sin. You're not just affecting the creation account, you're affecting everything that, had, that, that the Bible does and, and teaches. Instead, what a Christian can do is that they can recognize that by faith, but by a reasonable faith that is based on truth from God's word and the evidence that we perceive, uh, you can conclude this. The biblical chronology seems to allow for things like uh, thousands and thousands of years, okay? It doesn't seem to allow for things like millions or billions of years. Uh, and yet, God takes great care to make sure that in the Genesis 1 creation account, he goes out of his way to say things that I think help address this issue. So, for instance, on day three, when he creates the, the vegetation and the dry ground, what does he say? He doesn't just say that God creates seed. It says that God, he goes out of his way to say Mature plants, seed-bearing plants. And when he creates animals, it doesn't just say that he creates the egg. It says that he creates the chicken. Okay? They're mature and they're reproductory. When he creates human beings, they're sexually mature uh, humans, not just little babies. And what does that mean? That tells us although the uh, biblical chronology would seem to allow for thousands of years, not millions or billions of years, every single thing on the very day that it was created looked significantly older than what it actually was. Adam and Eve, on the day that they were created, on day six, looked like adults. They didn't look like one-day-olds from our perception. And so you and I should anticipate that our earth, although the Bible seems to allow for it in terms of thousands, should look maybe millions or billions of years old. Now, how does God do that? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, from the biblical account, if you read it carefully, I don't see it as illogical. I don't see it as anti-logical, but supra-logical. What I mean by that is it is a logic that goes beyond finite human reason. And if it is, in fact, a logic and a reason that is above what humans are capable of, then by definition, it is praiseworthy because we only praise that which is that, far, that much higher than above us. Okay? There's creation. What about the Trinity? Um, the creeds of the Christian church were largely created uh, in reaction to false teachings that were creeping into the church about uh, the triune God. And they tended to go one of two ways. Uh, this, I'm oversimplifying here, but they tended to go either in terms of uh, suggesting that God was maybe multiple gods or that he was only one person. And the Bible doesn't suggest either. The Bible very clearly testifies that he is three persons and he is one God. Three persons in one God. Now, how can that be? Well, I don't know. It's mysterious to me. 
It doesn't work according to finite human logic, but I don't think that it is anti-logical. I think that it is supra-logical. It's in a way that is above what humans are capable of grasping, which makes it one more reason for us to praise God. Uh, the third one, maybe the most important, is the last of the doctrines I'll share with you. The doctrine of salvation. Since God is above us, we should anticipate that his plan of salvation would be a plan that no person would ever come up with or contrive on their own. And I think that's what we see. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 1 as the foolishness of the cross. Here's what he says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who, be, uh, who, those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That simple notion that glory would come from ridicule. And that comfort can come from pain. Uh, or that defeat can bring about victory. Or that life can come from death. Everything about that, everything about the cross offends our natural human logic and instinct. But you know what? I think we're actually kind of at a little bit of a cultural moment where we don't want human instinct anymore. How many more Hollywood sexual misconduct allegations do you have to hear before you start to think, maybe it would be best if everybody didn't just act according to their instincts. Maybe we as a human race would be better if we didn't just do what comes naturally. Uh, people in position of power or otherwise. What if there would be a force that would come from the outside in that would actually be a power to help us restrain our natural instincts and replace our natural self. That's exactly what the gospel offers. God gives you a savior who comes supernaturally, who brings a supernatural love for you and lives a supernatural life for you. And then when he dies, everything about it is supernatural. Remember, there's earthquakes, the dead rise from their graves, darkness falls over Jerusalem, and the temple curtain uh, tears in two. When you believe in this Jesus who supernaturally pays for your sins, his supernatural beauty transforms you from a natural disaster of sorts into a supernatural child of God. And when you follow him, your life becomes anything but natural. So, the mystery of God, the foolishness of the cross, this is a good thing not a bad thing for us. The things that you can't fully satisfactorily process or understand, don't let that stress you out. That can be a good thing, not a bad thing. Why? Because if your life and your times, your hopes and your dreams are in this God's hands, you don't want him to be like you. You want him to be more powerful, more intelligent, and more talented, more capable than you. In the same way that a four-year-old doesn't want another four-year-old as a parent. They intuitively know that they need an adult. And yet they also understand there's a trade-off. If I'm going to have somebody who's that much higher than me taking care of me in the same way that an adult is higher than a kid and God is higher than us, that necessarily means that he's going to do some things in our life that are frustratingly mysterious to us. Don't be angry at God for the things that you can't explain or know or understand. Praise him because it's so much higher than anything that you would choose for yourself. 
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, many of us have probably experienced a certain level of anger in our lives toward you. And we know that you're big enough and you're gracious enough to handle it, but we still ask for forgiveness. There's certain things that you've done, certain things that you've allowed us to experience that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, that weren't comfortable and that we don't like. And yet we also submit to knowing that you love us so much that you bring things that are good for us, things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. Thank you for being so much higher than us. Thank you for coming up with things like the plan of salvation that we never could have conceived for ourselves. Help us be a people who embrace the mystery of your teaching. Help us be a people who beautifully walk by faith. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.